If you like what you hear on the Security Ledger podcast, you might want to check out one of our cybersecurity newsletters like the Daily Ledger or the Weekly Ledger. You can sign up for them at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. This is episode number 81. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief and publisher at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, we talk with Mark Lovelace of Duo Security about how flaws in the implementation of wireless protocols like Bluetooth make personal security trackers a double-edged sword. Also, has the world witnessed peak ransomware? We talk with researcher Adam Kajawa of the firm Malwarebytes about research from that company that suggests the ransomware craze may be dying down. But first, billions of dollars have been invested in technology to address the risk posed by software security holes. But what about the flaws in the very components that make up modern connected devices? We speak in this episode with Kevin Fu, a professor at the University of Michigan, who is warning of the risks posed by so-called physics-based attacks on sensors and billions of other vulnerable components that populate our world. To start our conversation, Kevin talks about so-called transduction attacks and how manipulating the physical properties of devices is a way to affect the behavior of software-driven sensing devices. Kevin Fu, Associate Professor at the University of Michigan in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. It's really about uncovering the physics of cybersecurity and, and how some of the physical properties of systems have been abstracted to the point uh, at which we, we really don't have a good way to describe the, the security of the systems, in particular sensor-driven uh, applications. It's just we're surrounded by sensors and actuators, and uh, we've always had them around, but um, they're being increasingly connected and empowered to make autonomous decisions. So talk just a little bit about the types of attacks we're talking about. We're used to, in this podcast, and generally talking about often software-based attacks, attacks that are happening against like the underlying logic of a software application or a operating system or something like that. So we're, we're used to hearing about buffer overflows, SQL injection attacks, sort of classic either software flaws or bugs, uh, usually involving sort of poor security hygiene during the programming. The, the types of problems we talk about in our article has a different character in that um, virtually none of the flaws we talk about have to do with the software itself, but it's more about the contract between the hardware and the software. And there's undefined behavior for some of this sort of social contract between the hardware and software, for instance, uh, you would expect that uh, an accelerometer simply provides you bits of information to tell you uh, about your, your, your change in velocity. But there's actually nuance to it. Uh, and it turns out there are other signals that can be misinterpreted as acceleration of an object. And, and there are ways using, for instance, acoustics to trick these devices into delivering incorrect information to the microprocessor. So you talk about these as transduction attacks, and you make the point that while the manifestation of the attack might express itself in software or the, the software systems that, that interpret the output of these sensors, that the attacks themselves really have to do with the physics of the sensor uh, hardware uh, or the system that it's a part of, right? That's right. So the, the problem starts in the mechanics and the physics of the materials, and then it bubbles up into the operating systems. And and you make the point that really all the classic security processes that we're used to or, or tools that we're used to 
thinking about to secure software, static analysis and fuzzing and um, signing software components really don't address this issue. So what is the how do you address this issue if it if it again is a matter of the physics of the material that a sensor is part of or of how it's deployed within a within a system? So we gave a couple suggestions, uh, more strategic uh, suggestions on how to reduce these risks. Uh, one is a bizarre way of improving security through physical specification. We we often joke, oh, oh, physical security, that's just locks and you know putting a guard at the door. But I was surprised to learn that there are some fairly um, low-cost approaches at the circuits level to make it harder for the adversary to pull off these attacks. Let me explain that by example. There was a CERT report that was generated by one of our uh, research papers a year ago where we could use acoustics to trick accelerometers into delivering uh, chosen data to a microprocessor. The manufacturer, Analog Devices, had a a really clever uh, response to CERT um, they advise their customers to drill holes differently in the circuit boards, um, such that it's called board deflection. You, you can think of the circuit board as acting as sort of a uh, a guide for these sound waves to the chip. And if you drill differently on the board as the defender, you can make it harder for these resonant frequencies uh, to reach the chip. Um, yeah. They also recommended digging trenches, literal trenches in the circuit board uh, on, for instance, mobile phones to separate the speaker from the sensors to make it harder for the adversary to co-op built-in transmitters. So this would be kind of a moat around the component, physical moat around the component to block those uh, vibrations really from reaching it? Is that a way to think about it? Precisely. And it it doesn't block it 100%, but it'll attenuate it. Uh, it'll damp it. It will make it harder for the adversary to get those signals uh, across that barrier. How is it that um, by sending sound waves at a particular component, you can influence its behavior in a way that's meaningful? There's some fairly deep physics, but at the high level, you've probably heard of the story of the uh, the apocryphal opera, uh, opera singer who sings a high note to cause a wine glass to shatter. Yes, uh, and that's because you hit the resonant frequency. We're we're co-opting a similar notion, but instead of causing the chip to shatter, we cause the chip to function in ways that were not intended. There, there are many different kinds of ways to cause a transduction attack, but one of the the slightly more intuitive ways is to um, trick a device into becoming an unintentional uh, receiver. I don't know. Have you heard stories about kids with braces and they can pick up an AM radio station? Uh, <laughs> you, you might have heard these apocryphal stories. Not recently, um, but we grew up in the 70s. So I, I think I remember from the 70s. <laughs> well, OK, so maybe only the, uh, the more experienced generation will appreciate the analogy, but it, it's, it's very similar to that. You know, people didn't put in their braces to receive radio stations. It was by accident. Uh, it's sort of a similar notion here. These sensors were not designed to receive our signals, um, but because of what's called a nonlinearity in the circuits and some bizarre things involving how they digitize these analog signals and how they, um, at what rate they sample these signals and deliver it to the computer, you can start to exploit um, some of the signaling theory. Um, uh, there, there's something, for instance, called aliasing, um, which is a generally unwanted property of, of any kind of signal processing system. And you can exploit these, these, um, these well-known issues in, in electronics to cause them to, to misinterpret signals. Um, 
So uh, just uh, I'm going to pile a lot of analogies on you, but um, if you've ever taken a video of a spinning uh, car tire as it's going down the road, you'll note that sometimes it looks like the the wheel is spinning backwards, right? Yes, um, yeah. I'm imagining it's the same idea. So, um, you know, you're, you're sampling, uh, you're, you're taking a snapshot, um, you know, 30 frames a second or something. And the same is true for microphones, for sensors. Um, and there's just some bizarre interactions when you can control, when you know uh, the sampling rate of these sensors, where you can cause them to to basically have a the equivalent to that optical illusion. One of your recommendations really is that manufacturers who are designing these um, embedded systems um, and connected uh, or sensor-rich embedded uh, systems need to consider or design around the notion that any particular sensor may not be trustworthy. So the the predominant model these days, I guess, is that you test the components that go into your system, but that more or less once they're there, they are trusted and whatever data or signal they are sending is uh, assumed to be accurate and true. And you're saying that you need to no longer have that presumption. How does that change the way you design these systems? With these sensors, it's a great example of you just need to design your systems defensively. Not only do you need to defend against outsiders, but you need to assume that components can fail uh, in ways that the adversary can control. So what does that mean? You could use the old phrase, trust but verify. Uh, So if you're getting readings from a sensor, you need some way for that sensor to prove to you with reasonable assurance that the values are correct. Um, They're sort of sanity checks. Uh, In our article, we show a photograph of our laboratory where the the thermometer or the temperature uh, claims to be something like 500 uh, degrees below absolute zero. Now, of course, that's impossible, but the software is happily displaying this value. So there there are some very simple things that can be done to rule out these nonsensical values, but they they don't appear to be um, in place even in commercial software uh, that, that we've seen. Um, one of your most interesting recommendations, Kevin, is around the need to begin training engineers differently, educating them differently, that you know the future is going to require a very different type of engineer from what we've become accustomed to, which is kind of the software engineer or the computer science student who really focuses on designing and you know effective and efficient, hopefully secure software. And you are a professor right now at the University of Michigan and work with engineering students uh, all day long. So talk a little bit about kind of the state of the art in educating and training engineers, how you think things need to change. So um, I think the future is analog. The closer we get to these cyber physical systems and actuators and devices that actually move, it's you know closer in spirit to robotics, flight control. The, the closer we get to this with the Internet of Things, the more we're going to need engineers who understand the underlying physics, uh, not just for security, but in, in general. But in particular, I'm, I'm sensing that there's this white space, this gap of knowledge about just good engineering practices to reduce these types of security risks. So what does that mean? It means we need to have a sufficient number of computer scientists who are trained in electrical engineering, uh, a little bit of physics, so they can understand sort of the analog equivalent to the buffer overflow, the um, understanding what's the risk, the ease or the difficulty of various classes of attack, um, and also how to build these systems more defensively. A lot of these devices are going to be built with large teams of engineers. One thing we point out in the article 
is how crucial it is for whoever's the team leader to have an appreciation, not for just the computer science side, but, but also the physics. So at least they can recognize a risk. They could choose to accept that risk, but to be more deliberate about it, as opposed to five years later discovering, oh my God, that internet-enabled light bulb we just installed has this trivial weakness. We hear a lot uh, now about kind of autonomous vehicles and the push to get autonomous vehicles out on the road. Listening to you and, and this, I, I worry that those vehicles or, or other autonomous uh, devices might be vulnerable to these type of attacks. Should we be concerned about that? And do we need some rules of the road, as it were, around the susceptibility to these types of transduction attacks and physical or physics-based attacks on, on these sensing systems? I think there's a, a gray scale of concern for autonomous transportation. I would be most concerned about any engineering lead who says we don't need to worry about that. I would say, oh, that's the one who's got the biggest problems and they don't realize it yet. I think what you'll likely find is a few engineering teams really recognize there's a problem. They, don't, they might not quite be sure what to do about it, but at least they build it into their risk management processes. It's okay to accept risk if you don't have a solution. It's, in my opinion, not okay to pretend the risks don't exist. So, for instance, if you have an autonomous vehicle and can trick the vehicle into thinking there's no object in front of you when, in fact, there is, that seems like a hazard to me. If I see a team strictly using probabilities to determine risk, I know they have not properly integrated uh, security thinking because adversaries don't work in this sort of we call Gaussian behavior. They, they don't they don't fail randomly; they fail deliberately. Right. And with just the sheer number of vehicles we should expect over the coming decades, I think it would be unwise to simply say. Uh, oh, you know, that's science fiction, where I think there's not a whole lot of understanding of the problem. And you know, that's okay, but we need to improve. And education is going to be part of that. And part of it also is on um, our third prong is about making the sensors be a little more forthcoming and providing hints to the software stack on how to evaluate its trustworthiness. It's, it's not going to be solvable only by software, only by hardware. There, there needs to be a more deliberate mechanism to make it easier for the software to verify the trustworthiness of the sensor data. Kevin Fu of University of Michigan, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us uh, on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul. Hey, this is Paul from the Security Ledger. If you're hearing my voice now, it means that you're a loyal listener of the Security Ledger podcast. To thank you for listening, we've got a special Easter egg offering, a one-of-a-kind Security Ledger t-shirt with a cool custom IoT security-themed artwork. Quantities are limited. To get yours, just go to securityledger.com t-shirt and fill out the order form. We'll ship it to you and be sure to include the special code to qualify for the order. That is SLT 2018. SLT as in Security Ledger. T as in T-shirt. 2018 as in it's 2018. Up next, the Washington Post reported over the weekend that fitness trackers worn by military personnel are inadvertently betraying the location of U.S. military installations, including secret bases used by special forces in countries like Syria and Afghanistan. The report is just the latest to highlight the privacy and security risks that fitness trackers, smartphones, and other connected, sensor-rich devices pose to personal and even state security. Mark Loveless knows this firsthand. The researcher at Duo Security has just just wrapped up a months-long audit of personal safety tracking devices that are being sold to consumers. The devices, which act like panic buttons, are used by individuals who are afraid of being stalked by strangers or acquaintances, and increasingly by human rights activists living
living under repressive regimes. In this interview with the Security Ledger podcast, Loveless talks about the vast differences he found in the security of the devices he tested and how flaws could make it easy to disable some safety trackers without the wearer noticing. Uh, my name is Mark Loveless, and I am a security researcher at Duo Security. You have this little device. It typically consists of a round, thin plastic device. It may or may not have a clip on it or something, and a button. Usually, one click does one thing, two clicks does another, and three clicks is, you know, kind of the SOS. Yeah, they, you pair them to your phone, and then you usually have, you set up like a list of contacts that you want contacted, you know, a number of friends or whatever, and then it sends your GPS coordinates as well as a predetermined message. Uh, so like for one button press, typically it's sending out a thing saying, I've arrived, and then number two is I'm in a kind of a sketchy neighborhood. Maybe that's what you put in. And the three is the SOS. Please send help. Please come and get me. Here's where I'm at. And you found a pretty wide disparity between these three devices. Again, you said the WearSafe, the Revelar, and the Aurora Athena. They all basically do the same thing. But when it comes to security, uh, they uh, showed up very differently in your tests. I guess let's start with the WearSafe, which doesn't seem to do that much right. Well, they did. They did some of the kind of the basics correctly. The first cut of it, they're pretty decent. It's just like with the WearSafe, their implementation of Bluetooth, their uh, pairing method involves using a, a four-digit four-digit uh, passcode, which is that's that harkens back to Bluetooth 4.0 days. And what's common right now is I think five is the latest, but four. 4.0, 4.2 in that range. That's usually what you're finding on pretty much everything that's out there. I believe that's probably what they had in place, but they had you know kind of retrofitted in the old 2.0 authentication stuff. So that's where some of the problems kind of start is by when you see that, you know that, okay, well, there's potentially they're not using some of the other security features that are in the newer stuff as well. The uh, denial of service, was probably the the biggest one because that was immediately in the threat model. If I can remotely take out the device to where when you press the button nothing happens, then that that's the exact thing you want to have happen is have that button press and have it work and notify that you are in danger and not have a potential attacker you know, be able to disable your personal protection device so you can't call for help. And it's especially bad because then you think you are calling for help and you're in fact not. And that was the case with uh, WearSafe. And at the other end of the scale from the WearSafe, you had this Roar Athena device that seemed to do a lot of things right. Um, you said you had a hard time compromising it. Um, talk about some of the security benefits of a device like the Roar Athena. Again, same form factor, more or less, same purpose. The The thing with it is, okay, you didn't have the insecure you know, legacy 2.0 pairing. Right off the bat, you got to have, a, you know, something that speaks Bluetooth 4.0 to pair to. They support that, and they're doing the highest uh, security modes. There's different modes, and there's different levels of security within the Bluetooth uh, model, and they're using the, the best ones. As a part of that, that means that uh, when you pair up to the device, the device is only in discoverable mode, this particular device, you had to like you know, hold down the button to get it to start 
broadcasting discoverable mode so you can find it from your phone. And then once you pair to it, no one else can pair to it and it drops out of discovery mode. There's a uh, fairly interesting key exchange, key exchange process that goes on They're doing a Diffie-Hellman key exchange uh, uh, in there. And so everything that's going on between these two devices is encrypted. Um, the other thing that was interesting is that as far as any type of tracking goes that you could potentially come up with, say get, you're getting around advertising mode. There's a few like kind of weird things you can do Bluetooth wise to kind of try to help you get around that. But the, uh, the initial um, Mac address of the Bluetooth device, it actually changes. Uh, I think with the roar, I think their implementation, they did it every 30 minutes or something like that. For example, uh, just by comparison, the, I know that the Apple Watch, they do theirs every 20 minutes. They implement this. And it's referred to as uh, LE privacy. Now, what happens is also every time you press the button on it to trigger an alert or to test it or to whatever, it changes the MAC address then as well. So that's kind of a neat little thing. Every time you replace the battery, it gets a new MAC address. So they're recycling through, and so that if they are, if someone is able to do something to track this device, this makes it infinitely harder to do. And then with the key rotation thing that they're implementing, and I'm almost positive that they've implemented full key rotation on this to where they're doing a rekey every few minutes with the Diffie-Hellman stuff. Yeah, I mean, you point out in your report, I mean, one of the kind of interesting things or paradoxical things about many of these personal safety or tracking devices is that uh, they can be used both for, for good purposes and for bad. So, you know, you have a personal tracker, that's good. If, you know, you go missing, people can track you. But of course, if there's somebody malicious who wants to track you, the device could unwittingly allow them to do that as well. And you talk about fitness trackers and so on for people who are concerned about stalkers, that those might be a no-go just because they're leaking a lot of information about your whereabouts and your movements. And and these devices generally don't do that, but that they, they could provide maybe a false sense of security in that uh, if they are vulnerable to attack, they may fail at the point when you really need them. Right, exactly. And and that's the thing. I mean, if, if, if someone came to me, if let's say that you know, it's a human rights worker or it's a, you know, a person that was afraid of a stalker or whatever, and they said, here's my tech. What do I do? It's just like, well, if you're worried about being tracked, then you need to not have these, you know, wireless headphones. I don't care how cool they are and how great they sound. The fact that you've got these things on is probably not great mm-hmm. because you can track via that. Or, you know, like some people have, have pointed out in this tracker. You know, you have got three comparable devices here with pretty different levels of security between them. But my guess is from the consumer standpoint, the fact that one of these is far more robust and hardened than the other two is probably not going to be a factor in the purchase of the device. There would be no easy way for consumers to know that. Not unless they put that in their advertising. And they're all saying, hey, we help improve your security. That's part of the the spiel for these types of things is they're all going to say, rest assured, you know, security, blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're going to do that. I mean, yeah, that's kind of the, the sad thing about it. I mean, they'll basically go off of, of what features 
yeah. it is. I mean, particularly they'll down, someone will download all three apps and they'll say, I like that app the best. I'm going to get that device. And that's what they'll do. Mm -hmm. Or the form, form factor of the device itself or something like that. Yeah, yeah, the form or the price. I mean, just there's, you know, I think the uh, WearSafe, I think they're the least expensive. That's the one thing people don't, they really don't seem to be freaked out about when you say security when you're talking about this stuff. But if you start talking about privacy, yeah, then you start getting, if they say, we put in features that enhance privacy, you know, here's how we do it. You can't be tracked. People can track you via these odd techniques. We're, we've thwarted that, you know. That that's the kind of thing that could be considered a selling point. Yeah, security is mean, kind of an abstract concept. It really is, and uh, yeah, and they're all used to. They're carrying around, you know, things like their phone and their laptops and and whatnot, and they're constantly being bar bombarded and told that those devices are insecure or whatever. So. Uh, what's in one more insecure device on their person? But if you get onto the privacy thing, then then that that tends to get people's attention just just a little bit. I think that'd be a differentiator, and I think that would be the thing. It's just like as far as you know, like when we were talking earlier about you know what you know how do we you know, get improve things? You know how do how do we make things better in general for this whole arena? I think by going through and saying, hey, focus on the privacy thing. When you're selling this to upper management, when you're trying to convince them that these features need to be in a product before you release it, yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing that would, uh, uh, I, you know, really, really work, really help. I think. Mark, if you're to put on your product reviewer hat here and take off your security researcher hat, you know, would you recommend these products to folks who might want their services? Uh, I would recommend the Roar, the uh, the Roar Athena, the uh, and the main reason is because of the tracking, mm -hmm. the tracking element, mm -hmm. uh, and that's it because it helps. It, that's a feature of it. It helps uh, protect your privacy, which was, is an important element in this entire thing. That was what I would recommend. The other two uh, do work, and uh, I mean they do they do function the tracking thing. If, if you can live with that. And I mean, there is some element of truth in that whole, well, you got to be within a certain range, you know, kind of a thing. If you're willing to accept that, then, you know, then uh, maybe, maybe it's worth it for you to uh, go ahead and get one of the other devices. If you like their features better, but I mean, just, just from a pure product standpoint, I'd take, I'd take the roar. Mark Loveless, security researcher at Duo Security. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Hey, you bet, Paul. And finally, when researchers at Malwarebytes look back at 2017, they saw a big jump in ransomware schemes. That's no surprise. Ransomware attacks have been on the rise for years. But there was something more interesting, a marked shift away from ransomware attacks on consumers, particularly in the second half of 2017. In this interview with the Security Ledger podcast, Adam Kajawa, the director of malware intelligence at Malwarebytes, talks about the decline in ransomware attacks, what's causing it, and what kinds of threats and attacks have replaced ransomware. Adam Kujawa, Director of Malware Intelligence at Malwarebytes. So 2015, 2016, I mean, ransomware was all over the place. We saw it being distributed through every mean, and uh, and it was it was just it was nuts. It was a huge problem. 2017, the first half of the year looked very much like previous years, and then moving on uh, from there, come 
basically the last quarter, the last three or four months of the year, it started significantly decreasing when it came to what we were seeing being pushed against consumers, regular people. It has, however, increased on the business side, which was interesting. So on the business side, we did see a, a very big increase in ransomware attacks near the end of the year, but a decrease for the rest of the world. We frequently see cybercriminals changing up tactics, abandoning what we thought was their primary method of attack for something uh, either new or, in many cases, something old um, that's been, you know, has new interest in it or has been modified in some way to be more effective. So that's what we're seeing with ransomware. When you combine the general knowledge that people have now about the threat, how to protect themselves, the increase in availability of anti-ransomware tools to prevent ransomware from doing any damage to the system, um, the increased amount of people utilizing backups, and basically knowing how to recover when they get hit with ransomware, that makes the whole attack method less profitable, therefore a a lower return on investment, and it could be time uh, for the criminals to try something else. And so that's what they're doing. I'm always surprised because even this year, ransomware was not the most prominent type of attack technology, malicious technology that you guys monitored and observed. And and that's actually always been the case. In fact, ransomware often wasn't even in the top 10. This year it was, but but not near the top. Um, talk just a little bit about what you do see in that kind of top two or three types of malware that you guys just encounter all the time. You know, just, just to kind of solidify my point earlier saying that that we saw peak ransomware we saw a big increase in ransomware but we also saw a a decrease in the amount of of evolution going on so there's less players out there is basically what we're we're saying uh and this is kind of a lead into the all right now ransomware just seems to be going away now we talked about the fact that there had been a a drop off in the development that was going on around ransomware but but Malwarebytes observed uh, even more generic just drop-off in innovation across a bunch of different categories of malicious software, kind of a tendency to reuse uh, you know, tools and, and families of malware that were already released. Um, mm-hmm. uh, thoughts on what might be motivating that? Is it kind of a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Or is something bigger going on? You're right. There has been a consolidation of efforts across a lot of different threat types. So we have the big players in ransomware, where all the little ones are starting to kind of disappear. We see big players in things like adware, where technology is being developed to make these things harder and harder to remove. So we've seen a lot of that happening. And this, you'd think that it would make a more dangerous threat landscape and if you had more people involved but when you have a consolidation of efforts all the resources are going in one place so these guys are able to do lots and lots more than they they had been before i mean these tactics are tried and true you know you go back five or six years banking trojans were all over the place the last half of this year we see a big increase in banking trojans um spyware has gone up significantly and then i said hijackers and adware so these are all tools that, that we had seen far more often many years ago coming back um, because they knew that they worked at one time and they worked decently and then evolving their capabilities to make them even more dangerous. The thing is, there aren't that many innovators in the cybercrime world. You know, there's a few that develop really nasty pieces of malware or really nasty methods of attack. And then you've got just hundreds of copycats, just people who, who are just want to do the exact same thing and... And like I said, that's exactly what happened with ransomware, where you had all these people interested, but it, the ability to innovate that space is is basically you're at the peak. 
some really fascinating stuff in the report that I highly recommend people check out is that there is some statistics on the increase of spyware against business for 2017. And so you see it at the end of the year. There's hijackers, spyware, banking trojans. These all match this. You start to see a spike come August. And then September, there's a drop. And then November, it spikes up again. So it looks like an M. Now, if you look at ransomware uh, detections for business during the same period, it's the opposite, where September is a huge spike and everything else is a drop. So that's (laughs) indicative that that there is kind of a single source or at least a a unified source of distribution going on um, because they're not trying to send all the malware all the time. They're just saying – so likely the people running the, the, the campaigns that control the exploit kits and, and the botnets spreading mouse spam, you know, they take clients themselves and they say, all right, I'll spread your malware for a month. You pay me this much. And then the next month to somebody else and et cetera, et cetera. I, I picture a, a 12 month calendar somewhere with, you know, spy written over November and ransom over December and spy over <laughs> January. Yeah, you know. One of the big attacks uh, this year was obviously the uh, NotPetya malware, a really devastating attack. It cost Federal Express upwards of $400 million so far. You guys predict that we're going to see more of that type of supply chain attack where a malicious software update was used to spread the malware. I mean, there, there were some other spreading mechanisms as well, but that was a big one. Um, Talk about that. So, yeah, we do expect to see more of these. Uh, Oftentimes, you'll see an attack method that comes from a likely state-sponsored actor eventually get adopted into the, you know, widespread world. And we kind of have seen that with the, you know, compromise of CC Cleaner earlier in 2017. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it's happening. It's coming. And the thing is that it's it's such a novel approach. I don't think there are enough people and businesses that are aware of that this is a method of attack. So when it comes to being the actual company that pushes out updates, I mean, you need to double authenticate these things. You need to make sure that what leaves your server is what you want it to leave and what gets delivered to the client is also what they want to receive. I mean, there's been numerous cases over the years of different types of software that have some kind of update uh, functionality. Uh, having a vulnerability in that update process and either it being someone being able to connect to the back end and switch out whatever the uh, update executable is supposed to be or the update data um, or by doing a kind of man in the middle attack where they redirect users to an update server that's controlled by the criminals and they push out whatever they want. Uh, So it's it's a common problem and hopefully it's going to get better. But in the meantime, for especially for companies, if you want to protect your corporate network from an attack of this method, then you should probably have a single system that is basically your test bed for all updates. And I mean, Every company should do this regardless. Deploy the update on that. If it doesn't explode, okay, maybe you can, you know, pass it to the rest of your company. Cryptocurrencies obviously have been on a roller coaster ride, and and uh, that's obviously increased uh, interest in the cyber underground in in mining Bitcoin mm-hmm. and other cryptocurrencies. We've seen a lot of crypto jacking attacks. Uh, first of all, maybe explain briefly what crypto jacking is, and talk about what you guys have seen with regard to this trend. Sure thing. Yeah. So crypto jacking, uh, also known as drive-by mining, the inclusion of some sort of code on any website that runs inside of the user's browser once they reach that website. And the code itself is meant to basically mine cryptocurrency. In most cases, it's Monero for the drive-by mining stuff because you could run a, a miner from a JavaScript in the browser that way. This is dangerous for a lot of different reasons. The first of all is that basically as soon as this technology was introduced or at least made popular, it was immediately abused <laughs> where you had lots and lots of website owners deciding to deploy this script on their site 
website without any sort of acknowledgement to the user or you're asking for their permission or being able to set things like how much CPU utilization do you want to have for this particular system? And then at the end of the day, you know, if you don't ask people to do this stuff, then then that's I mean, that's criminal in our eyes because it's a deteriorating hardware. It's slowing down operating systems. It's causing a lot of headache. And while these problems may not be evident immediately to the user, you know, years down the line, it's not even years. I mean, their graphics cards, their CPUs, their everything could be worn out a lot faster because you're using their system for something that it's not designed to do. If you give the user an option, hey, we want to use this instead of instead of pushing ads, you know, because ad blockers are stopping that a lot. So I understand the need, but ask them first. What can people do? What might be some tip-offs that a website uh, you're using might be doing this in the background? You know, what what can you do to protect yourself? I would recommend that if you do see some kind of a drop in performance of your system just suddenly after, you know, visiting a certain website, it might be best to check your, your control delete, check your system to see if to see how your performance is doing. If mm-hmm. your CPU usage is really high, that might be a problem. And then the other option is just use a browser that does not allow scripts to execute automatically. And there, uh, you know, Google Chrome, you could do that on Firefox. I mean, there's lots of different options there, even going so far as to using something like the Tor browser and no script. It makes the web a lot less fun, though, Adam. You know that. It does. It does make the web a lot, but it makes it more safe. So it's kind of a give and take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, safe and fun aren't always the same thing, though, are they? Yeah, no, um, no. Our stats for our report go from January to November 2016 to January, November 2017. We compare and look at those time frames. What we don't have in there, unfortunately, is December of 2017 when all of a sudden everything changed. <laughs> uh, we started seeing um, Bitcoin miners and other cryptocurrency miners being pushed through exploit kits, being pushed through malicious spam and phishing attacks, and even bundlers. Um, now we've seen Bitcoin miners kind of attached to AdWare in the past, but for a piece of software that usually just pushes adware to uh, be pushing nothing but miners is pretty insane. Um, so yeah, the the craze after after Bitcoin started just shooting through the roof and its value, all the cyber criminals got on board, and uh, and probably a lot of other people too. So uh, one of the other evolutions that uh, that we mentioned in the report uh, concerning banking trojans. Now, you know, like I said before, hey, they're utilizing advertising and everything like that. Well, then why are they using banking trojans? Because that information is is not really as valuable as it used to be. Unless you use these things to steal Bitcoin wallets. <laughs> and then, yeah. And so that's that's what we've seen a lot of. Uh, a lot more of these, uh, you know, banker malwares that used to steal financial information are looking for Bitcoin wallets, um, you know, physical ones on the system or credentials for logging into you know, cloud Bitcoin wallets and stealing money that way. Now, will this maintain throughout next year? That's hard to tell. I mean, there's there's definitely, there's a hype going on. It's a crypto mining craze. If that dies off, we, we will probably see a lot less involvement by cyber criminals. But they've always been pretty heavily invested in Bitcoin. So it's, it's likely that this year we're probably going to continue to see a lot of attempts at people stealing Bitcoin or mining or using resources of victims for mining. Um, but I don't, I don't predict that it's going to be dominating the entire threat landscape for all of 2018. Adam Kajawa, Director of Malware Intelligence at the firm Malwarebytes, thanks so much for coming on and talking to the Security Ledger about the latest State of Malware report. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.